This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily from Monday, the 25th of May, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, we have a special long-form interview with Daniel Whithouse from Niche, the National Institute for Challenging Homophobia Education. We find out what sort of work the organization does and how they've been successful in improving the quality of life of LGBTIQA plus people in rural and regional Australia. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Monday the 25th of May. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is being asked to front a Senate inquiry into the miscalculation of funds for the JobKeeper payment, which has been revised down from $130 billion to $60 billion. Calls have been made to use the savings to extend the program to workers who missed out, namely short-term casuals, university workers, artists and migrant workers. The government is saying there will be no extension to the program, claiming most not covered by JobKeeper can access assistance through other government programs. It's looking like New South Wales and Victoria will be open for visitors from New Zealand before all other states as the Australian government ramps up plans for the Trans-Tasman bubble. The federal government says they will not allow state border bans to impede the development of the travel bubble. At this stage, international travel may be open to some Australians sooner than interstate travel is. The federal government says they're wanting to open up the border to New Zealand as soon as it is safe so they can boost tourism numbers. Thousands of Australian students returned to school today after having been homeschooled for the first half of Term 2. Reports released earlier in the year warned that prolonged periods of homeschooling would harm the education of students, so the return to school comes as a relief for many. Students in Queensland, Tasmania and the ACT make up the bulk of those returning today, with many Victorian students set to return tomorrow. A senior advisor to the UK's Prime Minister is facing calls to step down after reports revealed he and his wife travelled over 400 kilometres while exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19. This was in direct contradiction to lockdown which had been implemented to stop the spread of the virus. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is standing by his advisor Dominic Cummings saying the couple had travelled so his parents could care for his son while he self-isolated. Victorians are preparing for a further relaxation of restrictions which will allow them to host up to 20 people in their homes and book accommodation for holidays. Other changes will be the opening of playgrounds, museums, zoos and libraries from June the 1st. Although this will allow more freedoms, Victorians are being told to remain vigilant as not following social distancing rules risks a second wave of infection. Queensland has reported negative numbers in their daily case number report after a data cleanse wiped five cases from the tally and no new cases were reported. This puts Queensland's total cases to 1,056. There has been very few case increases in the state despite easing restrictions.
This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Niche, the National Institute for Challenging Homophobia Education, has been running a number of activities to support the quality of life for regional queer people. I spoke to Daniel Woodhouse about their activities. How did you get started with Niche Australia? Uh, Niche was the result of a 266-day drive I did around uh, regional, rural and remote Australia in 2010. Um, so on that drive, what I what I saw was the need for rural LGBTI groups and those people who work with them to join up nationally. Uh, too often, regional and rural communities across Australia are asked to look to the, the capital cities of their states and territories. And what that often means is that LGBTIQ people in rural communities are the last thing on the agenda um, and often the first thing to be struck off when resources get low or it gets too hard. Mm. What, what prompted the 266-day drive? Um, so I had um, been lucky enough to work with Rodney Croom, who had done a rural LGBTI uh, project back in 1999 and 2000 with the then Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. Um, what I wanted to do was to see how things had moved on or not uh, since that um, since that project that, that Rodney did in 1999 and 2000. Um, my my idea was to drive around the country and get a modern day snapshot or it was modern back in 2010 <laughs> a modern day uh, a modern day snapshot about what uh, everyday life like uh, everyday life was like for lgbtiq people in regional rural and remote australia and rather than me coming into town and kind of going i'll give you a you know a score out of 10 based on how i think the quality <laughs> of life might be um, I took to having lots and lots of conversations. So uh, a third of the people I spoke to were LGBTIQ people. But interestingly, for a lot of people, two thirds of the people I spoke to were those who I would describe as, as in the mainstream. So cisgender, um, heterosexual, um, you know, whether that be police, local government whether that be um, schools, counselling services, uh, whether that be hospitals, whoever I could talk to in town to say, what do you think LGBTIQ life is like? Um, often what they'd say is, you know, um, thanks for your question, but we don't have any of those here. Uh, and I'd say, <laughs> okay, if they, if they did live here... Um, what do you think life might be like? And then we'd start a conversation. So what a lot of people would say to me on that drive was it's about bloody time that we had a conversation about this. And 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 again, getting back to, uh, you know, where did my organisation niche spring from? Um, not only was there a need from LGBTIQ people, but, but interestingly, I spoke to so many people across our great country that said, I feel like I'm the only LGBTIQ friendly or inclusive voice in this town mm -hmm. uh, and I feel really really isolated and I feel really concerned about what the, the health and well-being of LGBTIQ people might be so my job I, I saw was to somehow connect those people up um, but also to give them all of the resources that that, that I could to do their job mm -hmm. uh, with LGBTIQ people and what do you what did what was your response when people said you know, we don't have any of those here. Um, so, so, um, so when people when people say to me things like "we don't have any of those here," I would say, "Are you are you sure about that?" 
Mm-hmm. Um, is that maybe that you just haven't met them or they haven't self-identified or come out? And then people will start to say, oh, actually, yeah, there, there, there possibly could be some people. Um, my my, my favourite response to when I when I gently nudged and, and, and challenged people was, was that they'd say, oh, no, 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 we had one once, but that was five years ago and then he moved to the big smoke. Um, what what my, my conversations with people was to ask them a series of questions and to do a lot of listening um, mm-hmm. and to gradually challenge them more and more. And that by the end of the conversations that I had with these people was to point out that, um, you know, um, based on everything that you've said, that usually they would say to me, they would say, based on our conversation today, I can understand why people would not be open, uh, visible, uh, feel safe to be themselves in this town. Now, of course, we know that things have moved on since 2010. Mm-hmm. We know that there have been great gains. But um, thinking about the projects that I've done in recent years, even with Victorian rural and regional communities, uh, what they're saying is that visibility of LGBTIQ people and safety, their feeling of safety, are the two biggest issues for them. So what sort of work is Niche doing now? So we're lucky enough that the last uh, four years we've partnered with the Victorian government and uh, particularly the Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality, Ro Allen. And what we've done is we've worked with 29 Victorian regional and rural communities, and that is to look at LGBTIQ inclusion. So Nietzsche's role is to work with communities before, during and after the Commissioner comes into town. And Nietzsche's job is really to facilitate conversations between mainstream Uh, service providers and locals and LGBTIQ people. What often people will say uh, in these towns is that, you know, we we, we kind of feel like we've got these pockets of support. We kind of feel like we've got the LGBTIQ true believers who are in town. But what we feel like is that we're we're not having any conversations with the biggest bits of town. So what are they? Across Victoria, what they'll say is that we need to talk with local government. We need to talk with the largest healthcare providers. We need to talk with the police. We need to talk with all of the not-for-profits in town. And up until this current project, this partnership with the Victorian government and the commissioner started, um, they were saying that those conversations were not happening. LGBTIQ people were saying they didn't feel like their stories and their voices were heard. And what we find is, is that when people do come together and have those conversations, that's when the magic happens. A minute ago, you spoke about how... um you started having conversations with people in Victoria. I think it was about four years ago, you said that they started yes. to change. What have you seen in the 10 years since then? Or since you, your, your 2010 trip? What's really struck me as I've continued to go out to, to different communities is this, this changing narrative. So when I first started talking with communities, um, people would say, I, I, I don't feel safe to be in my own community and I feel like I'm going to have to leave. I don't want to, uh, but I feel like I'm going to have to go to the big smoke or to a larger a larger kind of place in order to be myself and to feel safe and to thrive. Um, what I've seen in the last 10 years is that um, there has been a change in the narrative. So when I go out to communities now, I meet a whole range of people who say, 
we we live in these communities. We love these communities. They're not perfect, but neither is the big smoke. Um, we actually want to stay in these communities and we shouldn't have to feel like our only choice to be ourselves is actually to move to the big smoke. Mm. So what you find is that those people who are living their everyday lives, who are telling their stories, who are being themselves, who are demanding something better, are actually changing those communities um, you know, one community, like, you know, one community at a time, all the conversations that they have with the people around them. So, so when we, when we go into towns, often they're the first people that we touch base with. Mm. And what they'll say is, is, um, they'll say, I've been able to have a life in this town that suits me that where I feel safe and I feel connected and I feel like I can be myself but what I'm worried about are all the other people who live in this town or neighboring communities who still don't feel the same way that I do Mm. The, 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 the reality is, is that even when I went around the country in 2010, even when I was a, um, a, a reference group kind of advisory person in 1999 and 2000, we were, we were still hearing these stories. Um, LGBTIQ people thriving in rural, regional and remote Australia is nothing new in Australia. We've got decades and decades of stories. It's just that we're hearing more and more of them now. There are, there are places in Australia, in every nook and cranny, you'll have LGBTIQ people who are living... Uh, amazing connected lives they're 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 they're, they're thriving they're fully participating mm. they're contributing to their communities um but but in reality um when you meet a lot of those people as i have and collect their stories um these are extraordinary people who i think would thrive anywhere in australia um, so it's important. To, it's important to know that you know when we when we see those amazing stories and we see these people who are who are living these these extraordinary lives in everyday communities is that we, we 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 need to also think about those people who maybe don't have that confidence, who maybe don't have those connections, who maybe don't have you know some of that, and let's let's face it, some of that privilege um, that 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 we know exists um, in Australia. Yeah. They, they're not able to leverage that privilege in their everyday communities. That's where niche comes in. That's where project like this partnership with the government comes in. Is that we try and make sure that more people get a great time in regional and rural Victoria in particular for that project um, mm. rather than leaving it up to the occasional kind of individuals because because we know that if we leave people if we leave people and communities to their own devices only the occasional individual is actually getting the benefit of living in regional rural and remote Australia so one of the things that remains mm -hmm. to this day uh, which has not changed is that people will talk to me a lot about the benefit of living in regional, rural and remote Australia. And I'll start to talk about inclusion and I'll say all the benefits that you get from being included in these communities. But what I want to talk about and continue to talk about is how those same communities with all of those, those benefits can brutally exclude people who don't seem to fit for whatever reason. And LGBTIQ people have been on the receiving end of that exclusion too many times. Yeah. But what we do know, and this is the, the you know, this is the this is the, the the great story that we can tell. We know this that that has been. Um, you know this this knowledge has been gained by the formal evaluation by Vic Health. We know this from a couple of decades of work in re regional, rural, and remote communities. Is that with minimal investment 
And by allowing local lived experience to basically come to the fore, that you can make great changes, really, really great significant changes in regional, rural and remote Australia for LGBTIQ people. And we guarantee that with those investments, those targeted investments, and really leading with that local lived experience that you can change and save, save, uh, save lives. And that's what gets me up in the morning. We'll have more from Daniel after this. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Continuing now with our interview with Daniel Woodhouse, we talk about how some of the projects have directly impacted regional communities and the results that they're seeing and what really works. So if you are a community and your service comes in, what is, how does that start? What does that look like? So let, let's let's imagine that it's not part of the Victorian government partnership. Um, so so generally, what will happen is that I'll be invited into a community by a local LGBTIQ group. They might not be formal. Most of the times, it's an informal group. And usually, what they've done is that they they've gotten in contact with a local mainstream organisation. So to give you a give you a really good example of that is that. Uh, for a number of years, I was working in the northwest of Tasmania. This was once a place where where people said it was it was one of two of the most homophobic places in um, in Australia. And Niche decided that this was a really important place to work. Um, we worked with Relationships Australia Tasmania, who had some suicide prevention offices there. They had some um, some small amounts of funding, but also what they had is that they had this informal network of LGBTIQ people who lived. In in small communities across the northwest of Tasmania. Mm -hmm. The first step was to gather those LGBTIQ people and do a leadership retreat. And what we did was that we worked with them firstly for a weekend and we got them to identify what kind of change they wanted in their communities across the northwest of Tasmania. Then what we did was that we followed them up uh, three times. So we six months later, then six months after that, then six months after that to look at what work worked, what changed, and what additional uh, additional you know skills and strategies and tools that they needed, and over time, um, and this has been this has been well documented in Tasmania, um, that LGBTIQ informal group became formalised. Um, they now run uh, Tas Pride events. Um, you know when COVID nineteen obviously isn't isn't um, in the in the mix, um, they have uh, lobbied for and got grants from the Tasmanian government. To, to run LGBTIQ initiatives. Mm -hmm. They're now mentoring uh, emerging LGBTIQ leaders. They've spread out to do stuff across not only the northwest of Tasmania, but also the north of Tasmania and the east of Tasmania. So what we try and do is we, we, we go in and we, we leverage... You know that that, that um, the resources, the goodwill, the authority, um, um, the opportunity from working with the mainstream organisation 
Mm-hmm. And then what we do is we harness what's already there. So these LGBTIQ people who have those connections in local communities. Now, now they have the best lens about what it is that we can do. So, so one of the things that I'm really, really excited about when I go into communities is that they have really good ideas for what they can do, um, you know, in terms of low hanging fruit. Like what's the low hanging fruit? What are the things that they can do in the next three to six months that are actually going to get traction? Um, um, and make them feel safer, make them feel more supported, make them feel more welcome, and make them feel more included. Very, very practical things. Now, of course, after those initiatives and after them trialling these things, some of them work, some of them don't. After that six months, there can be a reassessment. And what we find is often that the community is in a very different place, mm-hmm. but also they themselves are in very different places as they emerge and, and step into that, those leadership roles. Okay. And so what we find is is that with those that checking in over time, that, that, that their communities change at a similar rate as they do themselves. And then generally what happens is that part of that is that, that you know, it requires them sharing their stories yeah. in their local communities. And what that does is, is it provides visibility, which communities, Community members say we don't we don't see LGBTIQ people we don't see any visibility mm-hmm. of LGBTIQ inclusion, but also people feel safer and emboldened to come forward and contact. So often what that what we find is, is that from that small informal network, as has happened in the north you know northwest of Tasmania, that more and more LGBTIQ people form a network, yeah. come to gatherings. Um, and then we, and then, which was very, very exciting, came into the leadership retreats themselves. Mm. But we actually had the original group that were coming in to facilitate sessions and to mentor and to to talk about their experiences, their local experiences, um, which is re- you know really, really exciting. We 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 find a similar thing um, when we you know have been working with these Victorian communities. So uh, that that would involve me going, and and I I often yeah. say that you can you can change the world one cup at a time. So what I will do is I'll go into communities and I'll have cuppers with as many different people as possible. And that through those conversations and through subsequent meetings, that's really the co-design. So that's where, you know, I'm working with the local community and the local LGBTIQ people to identify what are the top issues, what are the top challenges, and what are the things that we can do to actually start to address those. So really mm. it's a co-design process and it's things that are going to work for them rather than me, niche, the government, anybody coming in and going, this is what we think should happen. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm really reminded, I was lucky enough to work on an international project. Um, so there was a Dutch government funded organisation that I worked with for a number of years. And when we went into developing countries, um, the LGBTIQ groups there had often been scarred by <laughs> um, US philanthropic groups. Now, there are lots of great U.S. philanthropic groups, but there were some that would come into their country and say, you just basically need a gay bar and a pride parade and everything will be fine <laughs> here for LGBTQ people. Now, now that experience and seeing the great work that we could do in those developing countries was something I brought back to Australia. And I thought, rather than being the metro, uh, the metro going into the rural communities and saying, all you need is a gay bar and a pride parade and you'll be fine. Yeah. was to really take the lead mm. from the locals and their lived experience. And, and, and this is, like, I, I think that sometimes, um, you know, I've heard people, you know, people in metropolitan centres disparage 
rural and regional places is just full of rednecks and behind and all the rest of it. But what I find is is that you've got some really, really um, advanced operators who have a really sophisticated view of what they can do in their own community. Um, what we what we try and be, what Niche really tries to be is a catalyst, mm. you know, an excuse and a permission to start a conversation because we know, um, we know that sometimes it's not safe to be the person to raise um, raise the issue. Um, sometimes it's it's not safe to be the person who asks the questions. Yeah. And sometimes it takes um, some some uh, you know uh, you know to leverage a kind of outside voice or organisation. Um, one of the one of the really great things um, I've worked in many many communities across Australia. And um, um, and had great experiences with that, but there was something special about Victoria where we could we could basically leverage having a commissioner for gender and sexuality. We could leverage the fact that we had state government funding. We could leverage the fact that we were driving into town on a Victoria Police bus with Victoria Police <laughs> members. Um, these things make a huge difference for visibility, for safety. Um, you know, and, it, and it, it was not uncommon for us to have people sitting in a room with a commissioner and the mayor and the CEO of the hospital and, mm. you know, all these different not-for-profits and for people to burst into tears and say, never, never in my lifetime, you know, would I ever think, would I ever believe that I would have a mayor saying this, that we would have the police, like knowing the, the historical um, relationships mm. that people have had, you know, I, I, even in even in the big smoke, let alone in regional and rural areas, um, you know, this is this is how we know that this can make a significant difference to people. And and you know, I, I want people to know also that, you know, part of the work that we do, it's 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 partially sometimes it's symbolic, but also it's incredibly practical. Mm. So it's not just okay, let's just cut a ribbon and put up a flag and that's it. This is about how can you integrate local lived experience into the way that the hospital runs everyday business. You know, for the for the uh, the local government to have an official LGBTIQ advisory group for there suddenly to be for the first time after the locals have been calling it for for five years that there's actually an a funded LGBTIQ youth group, um, mm. that there is a space for elders and not recognising that, that uh, you know, and recognising that it's not just young people that are impacted by this, um, you know, that there's safe spaces for people to gather and just socialise, that there are family-friendly opportunities in those towns, that there's access to services so people don't have to drive, you know, three or four hours to come to Melbourne and get um, a decent, uh, you know, a decent, um, you know, safe safe GP to have a conversation with. All of these things are incredibly practical and they make, you know, as, as I'm sure people can imagine, make a huge difference to their everyday lives. Mm. And that was Daniel Whithouse from Niche, which is N-I-C-H-E dot org dot A-U. They've got some really interesting things on their website. Now, we did talk a bit about some sensitive subjects. If you do need to reach out and talk to someone, there's some great resources on joy.org.au slash support. Definitely check that out. That's all for us today. I'd like to thank Emily Johnson, Dee Mason, Nicholas Kamenyusandri, and all the fine folks at the Community Radio Network for their assistance today. I'm your executive producer and host, Arian Potts, and we'll be back tomorrow. Mahalo.
Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.